Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. We're continuing in a series that we started last week looking at the book of Jude. And, and as we pointed out last week, he writes this book with a lot of passion. Uh, he writes it with a little bit of anger, um, a little bit of frustration, but he also writes it with a little bit of guilt. And let me show you why. Um, open to the book of Jude. Uh, if you start back in Revelations and, and start going left, you'll probably hit it quicker. But while you're turning there, let me show you this. In the book of Matthew, uh, this is what Matthew writes. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 to 58. This is the English Standard Version. He writes, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary, or his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? So the Jude who wrote this, as I said last week, uh, is Judas, not Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, but Judas, the brother of Jesus Christ. Now, he also writes this, though. This is what Matthew continues. He says, sorry, but Christy is texting me during church and showing up on my tablet. I'm like, really? Okay, he also says this. Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So the people there in his hometown, in his household, Matthew is writing and saying, hey, the people there in his town and in his household, they didn't believe him. They didn't believe in what Jesus was doing. They didn't believe he was uh, a prophet. They didn't believe he was sent from God. Um, John takes it even further. And this is what John writes. In John chapter 7, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see that the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed in him. So John is saying not even his brothers, Joseph, James, Judas, Simon, they didn't even believe in him. So it's not just the people in the town. His own brothers, including Jude, also known as Judas, didn't believe in him. Uh, Mark tells us this. In verse 13, he says, And he went up to the hillside, in Mark chapter 3, and called to him, this is Jesus, for himself, those whom he wanted, this is the amplified version, and chose, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 to continue to be with him. He appointed his disciples uh, to be with him, to spend time with him, to further minister with him, and that he might send them out to preach as apostles or special messengers, and to have authority and power to heal the sick and drive out demons. Now, then the next verse gives the names of all the apostles, and then down in verse 20, this is what it says. Then he went to a house, probably Peter's, but a throng came together again so that Jesus and his disciples could not even take food. 
And when those who belonged to him, his kinsmen heard it, they went out to take him by force. For they kept saying, he is out of his mind, beside himself, deranged. Now, depending on which version you read, I think it's the King James and the NIV, one uses the word family, one uses the word friends, and it says, and when his friends, or his, one says his family heard it, they went to take him by force. This isn't his disciples, because those are the people who he just named and who he said he were going to be with him. Uh, the phrase that it uses that translated those who belong to him, it could be used as kinsmen, but it's really those people who are around you, who associate with you, who hang out with you. Uh, some would call it your clique, your crew. In African-American culture, it's called your ride or die. Those people who say, I'm going to ride with you through life no matter what, or die trying because I'm going to be there for you. In this case, that's what it's talking about, not his disciples, but his family. The people who are supposed to be there for you. And they said he's out of his mind. And the reason it says in parentheses, beside himself or deranged, is because the word literally means like psychotic or whatever word you want to use for those people who have like split personalities and talk to themselves because that's the way they looked at Jesus. His brothers and probably, you know, his sisters, it doesn't mention them, but his family looked at him and said, dude, you're, you're out of your mind. If you think that you're God, or you're the Messiah, or you're the Christ. That's why they said, if you do these things, go up uh, and do it. Now, James, later, uh, we're told, becomes a believer. Uh, Paul says when he writes a letter to the church in Corinth that Jesus, when he was resurrected, he appeared to over 500 people, he appeared to the apostles, and then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. So James, we know, you know, saw the resurrected Jesus. It doesn't tell us how Jude became a believer. Uh, it's possible that Jesus appeared to him, and it's just not documented in the Bible. It's also possible that James went back to him and said, dude, we screwed this one up. Guess what? Jesus was right. But however Jude became a believer, he had a little, you know, reason to be passionate about people who were teaching that Jesus wasn't the Christ. He had a reason to be like a little bit angry at people that were doing false teachings. He had all kind of reasons to be a little bit guilty about not believing before. And it may seem like that he's, you know, just a fanatic and that he's just kind of uh, like throwing out stuff like a religious fanatic, because that's what some people say about, you know, Christians today when we're pushing the gospel and this, that, and stuff, that you're, you know, a religious fanatic. But let me share with you uh, a little bit of information. Last year, we did a series called I Have a Friend Who Says. Uh, I think June of last year, we did a series called I Have a Friend Who Says. And these are some of the topics that we, that we talked about. Because there were people today, then, now, that are asking, can the Bible be trusted? Can Christians and Christianity be trusted? There are people asking, you know, isn't this book been rewritten over and over and over again? I was at a small group up at CCAC, and one of the students there said, you know, I, I can't trust the Bible. It's been rewritten over and over and over again. It hasn't been rewritten. It was written. And then based on a style of language and communication, then there are different versions of it, but it all has the same content. 
And when we did our series, I have a friend who says, uh, we started out with saying, I have a friend who says, there is no God. And we presented, here's information that you can not beat down, not, not like try to uh, pencil whip or Facebook whip your friends into believing, but just so you can respond, have accurate information to respond to people that say there is no God. And we looked at all the evidence for God. And then we looked at, um, I have a friend who says the Bible can't be trusted. We looked at all the evidence outside of the Bible and inside of the Bible, historical evidence, archaeological evidence for the Bible. Uh, and then we looked at, well, how do we respond to those friends who says, you know, evolution and science disprove the Bible? And we looked at the fact that there is not one single thing, one scientific fact that exists that disproves the Bible or contradicts the Bible and not one thing in the Bible that contradicts any scientific fact, not one. And then we looked at, you know, what about those people who say the church just wants one? Now, how many people have heard that before? Okay, uh, some of you. I hear it a lot. All the church wants is my money. And so we looked at that and we talked about that. So we could, so we as people, when people ask us and when your children go off to school and college and people are asking them, you know, uh, about God and the Bible and the church. And then we looked at this one, which was, in my opinion, probably the best and most important one we did throughout the series. I have a friend who says, can God really love someone like me? Because many of us have friends and family members that say that. And several years ago, before my brother passed away, one of the last conversations uh, we had was him saying, you know what? I don't think God could ever love me. Church is for you, but if I were to show up, you know, God would strike me dead. He'd, 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 he'd like, you know, blow up the building because I've just done too much bad and rotten stuff. And we got to have a great conversation about God's view of, yeah, we all have from God's view. But he doesn't look at us that way. He looks at us as people that he wants to love and he wants us to receive his love. And now, uh, we did that series last summer and um, we, haven't, we haven't, like, come back to anything like this since then. But this is from last week. I don't know if you guys can see this. From last week, I was looking at our website, and the number one number of downloads were two messages from that series, I have a friend who says. And it's not because we're that good. I mean, obviously not. We only get, you know, a couple of hundred downloads a month. But it's because people are looking for truth. They're looking how to respond because right now out in the world, there's a lot of people questioning, you know, th and this isn't even about, you know, what religion is right or, or this. This is people questioning truth and saying what's true and what's real and, and what can I believe and what can I trust and, and is the Bible accurate and can I believe because I hear one Christian say this thing and one Christian say that thing and people are looking to try to understand truth. And from our perspective, the word of God is extremely important in revealing truth, which brings us to the book of Jude, because that's, that's what it's about. So uh, turn to Jude, and, and we're going to look at um, verse 5. If you have a Bible, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under your seat, left, right, somewhere around you. Uh, if not, raise your hand, and we'll have someone uh, bring you a Bible. And again, this book is only one chapter, so we're starting in verse 5, and this is what it says in Jude, verse 5. It says, though you already know all of this, this is Jude writing to the church, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Now, he is saying the Lord did this. Again, Jude's saying that he totally believed that Jesus Christ was God. 
Because as a Jewish person, he would have known the history of Jerusalem. He would have known that, you know, according to Exodus, God the Father is the one who delivered the Egyptians out of Egypt. He equates Jesus Christ, the Lord, with God. And he says, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now, this isn't just him saying, you know, here's all these bad things. It's Jude saying that God is going to judge those people who twist God's truth or rebel against God's truth or reject God's truth. And he gives us three examples. And the people in Egypt, when God led the people out of Egypt, if you familiar with the Ten Commandments, there was nothing but rebellion. They rebelled about the food he gave. They rebelled that he was providing water in the desert. Uh, they rebelled about the leadership. And then they rebelled. They got to the foot of the mountain while Moses was up talking to God. They said, you know what? It's been a long time since we had some church. So they created this big giant calf and said, this calf made out of gold, this is Jehovah. This is the God that led us out of Egypt. And they rebelled over and over and over again. And then the angels, uh, now it says the angels that held positions of authority, what most theologians believe is that uh, when one-third of the angels rebelled, um, some of those angels that are now demons that rebelled, uh, you know, uh, we're told in the Bible that they roam around. They're, they're free today. But just as in any wartime situation, uh, there are, there's a hierarchy of the angels, and the ones who had higher authority, the ones who had more power, and the ones who could do more harm, uh, most theologians believe those are the ones, the positions of authority that are held, they're in chains today. If, if you uh, and may have, uh, have not paid attention to this because it was not in our time frame, some of us have, but after you know, World War II, when they had all the war trials, when they bring all these war criminals, there were a lot of people that could have been put on trial. The soldiers were not put on trial. The officers received higher punishment than the soldiers because they had more authority and more power. And that, that's what a lot of theologians equate this verse to. There are angels that are, you know, the Bible tells us that Satan has his angels, uh, those messengers that work for him. They're still around today. But the worst of the worst, what we're told here, are in chains held until the day of judgment. And Sodom and Gomorrah, many people look and say, you know, this is all about sex. This, this, cause, because the act that we see um, in the book of Genesis is a sexual act that makes God say, I'm done. But that's not the only thing. God's not this prude of a God who says, thou shalt not sexually and whatever. Uh, if you look in, well, I won't get into the sex talk. Anyway, so uh, here's what Ezekiel tells us. And this is Ezekiel, who's a prophet. He's speaking to the people in Jerusalem. And he says, not only did you, the Jewish people, walk in their ways, meaning the surrounding nations, and do according to their abominations, within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. And what he tells the prophet Ezekiel to say to the people in Jerusalem is you are more corrupt and you've done worse than Sodom and those nations, her daughters, that came out of Sodom. Moab is one of the nations that came out of Sodom. And then he goes on and he says this. 
he says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. This was the wrong that God charged, God charged them with. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. And what God is saying is, hey, you know what? It's not just that they did this sexual abomination. That's one thing. But they were prideful, which God hates pride. But then they had excess food, not just enough food, excess food and prosperous ease. In other words, they didn't even have to work at making money and getting profit. But they did not aid the poor and needy. And if you study the history of Sodom and Gomorrah, not from a Bible standpoint, from a historical standpoint, and I want to make sure I'm summarizing this right. I may get a little wrong. There was a rule or a law, I can't remember which it was, in Sodom, which said that if someone comes into town, whoever in the town had the most stuff, like the wealthier or the more powerful, had first dibs on taking that person's stuff. So if Andrew were to drive into town as a tourist and come check out Sodom, uh, and let's say that you know, Kevin and I were kind of going back and forth on who had more money and power and wealth, then I could go and say, Andrew, hey, nice to meet you. Step out of your car, go check out that museum because that car is now mine. And I want to add it to my wealth. And it was legally okay. There were no cops to call. There was no one that could say that's wrong. And if I wanted to, I could say, well, Marty, looks kind of good. She's mine too. Which is why when you read through the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, when uh, the angels come in, uh, Lot says to them, don't stay here, it's not safe. And he takes them into his house. And if you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, when God appears to Abraham, he says, I've heard the cry of the wickedness of this city, but I needed to come down and experience it for myself. Now here it says, when I saw it, but this is me, this is Floyd, this is Floyd, what I, what I believe, is that God literally, you know, because God knows all, he sees all, he knows the hearts of men, he knew these men are wicked, but he literally said, I've got to come down and experience that level of wickedness that would make one human who has more than enough treat another human who has nothing that way. And when he did come down, and you can read the rest of the story for yourself. That's where they experienced all, all the sexual um, depravity and all that kind of stuff where they said, hey, br the whole town showed up and said, hey, bring out these guys so that we can have sex with them. And God said, you know what? That's enough. That's, that's more than enough. So Jude is telling us that God has judged righteously those people who defied his word, rebelled against him, and rejected his word. And he's going to continue to judge uh, these false teachers. And then jump into Jude 8. In Jude chapter 8, it says, In the very same way, these dreamers, and he's talking about the false teachers, pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputed, with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this isn't about angel worship. It's just about spiritual authority and acknowledging that there is a spiritual authority and acknowledging that God has created spiritual beings and acknowledging that if God created those beings, 
then it's not our place or our role to, to think that we're better than or confront them. And then he goes on and he says this, verse 10, Yet these men, these false teachers, speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Now, uh, really quickly, let me say this, because lack of understanding is important. Because what happens when you don't understand something? You try to come up with a reason why it occurred, right? Because if, and not to get into politics, but if you're a Democrat, there's a lot of Democrats trying to understand, why is Hillary beating Bernie? They can't understand it. I keep seeing posts from people saying, me and all my friends are voting for Bernie. How is Hillary doing this? If you're a Republican, you're trying to figure out, why is Trump winning over all these other people? And we, we, people are coming up with reasons. It must be this. It must. The answer is because people are voting for him. But people are trying to reason, well, why would people vote for him? Why this? And we're trying to come up with these reasons in our head. Now, let me give you a scriptural reason, a scriptural example of this. Because how many people have heard of, you know, this, this concept, the Trinity? Now, the word Trinity doesn't exist in the Bible. Because the word Trinity didn't come into being until like 17 or 1800s. Bible was written way before that. But the concept is that there is one God, and, and this image doesn't do that great of, a, uh, of explaining it, but there's just one God. Behold, Israel, the Lord your God is one. So have no other gods before me. One God. But God the Father is God. Jesus the Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. So there is three who's. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three who's, one God. And the reason why this doesn't do good and the reason why it's hard to explain is because there's nothing like it to compare to it in a universe. Nothing in a universe like what we call the Trinity exists. Now, there are people who say that's not true. Even though there are places in the Bible where just like where we just read where Jude attributed an act of God to Jesus Christ, in essence, equating Jesus Christ with God. Uh, and there are places where, you know, John says, hey, you know, the word was made flesh and the word was with God and the word was God and the word is Jesus Christ, you know, equal, equal, equal God. And there are people who say, well, you know what? God the Father is God. And then there's Jesus who is not God and the Holy Spirit is God. Or they say there's God the Father who's God and then he disappears and he appears as Jesus Christ so there's no one on the throne in heaven while Jesus Christ is down here as God. And then he disappears, and he goes to heaven, and then they both, you know, he disappears, and he comes down, and he's the Holy Spirit as God who's inhabiting his people, one God who only can do this. And it's not that, I'm not trying to say they're right, wrong, or whatever. I'm just trying to say, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says God the Father is God. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is God. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is God. And the number one reason why most people who say they don't believe in, you know, the Trinity, here's the number one reason they give. You can look this up. They say, how can the Father be God and Jesus be God if there's only one God? Basically, they say, I don't understand this, so it didn't happen. It would be, it would be like saying, I don't understand how, you know, Trump became the Republican nominee, so it's not real. It didn't happen. It'd be like saying, I don't, I don't understand how, you know, America got this much debt, so it's not real to me. It didn't happen. And that's what 
Jude is saying that there are people, these false teachers, there's things that they don't understand, so they come up with their own reasoning that replaces the Scripture or in some places refutes or rejects the Scripture. And then he closes with this. Well, we're going to close with this in chapter, verse 11. He says, woe to them, and uh, I apologize if I get a little bit loud, but I want you to hear it with the emphasis that he's writing. He says, woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Basically, he's saying that all these people who challenged God or rejected God ended up dead or separated from God. And verse 12, these men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. In other words, they're selfish. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Now, he's using a lot of imagery that we're like, okay, is this a poem? What's he doing? Basically, he's saying these are useless people. They're selfish. They're useless. I mean, what good is a fruit tree that's dead, right? It, I mean, it's useless to you. What really good is a cloud unless it's bringing rain? And if it is bringing rain, it's spoiling a river fest. So what good is that? But he's basically saying these are useless, selfish people. And then he goes on and he says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. He says that these men are useless, they're selfish, and all they are seeking after is to exalt themselves, and it's at the cost of us. Because if they're twisting the truth, then we don't get to receive and to hear the truth. If they are, if they are um, finding ways to, to, to reason against the truth of God's word, then we don't get to hear the truth of God's word. And last week we talked about these aren't just people out on the streets. These are people that are in churches preaching the gospel and sharing, and they have ministries, and they have TV programs, and there's nothing wrong with having mega church or a TV program or whatever if you're sharing God's truth and you're feeding God's people and you're doing God's will. But if you're not, you're denying people the truth. Now, here's the thing. There is a thing. I'm going to close with this. Uh, there is a thing called absolute truth, right? Absolute is contrasted with relative. So to speak of truth as absolute is to say that something is true absolutely or not relative to something else. By that, we might mean true unconditionally, no matter what. There are certain things that are true no matter what, and they can't be based on us because we change. So for it to be true all the time, it can't change. For one plus one to be true all the time, it can't change when you cross a border. It can't change depending on what bank you go to. It can't change depending on who's paying you. Like if I work for this company, if I work for Coca-Cola, you know, I'm getting this much. But if I work for Pepsi, 
one plus one doesn't equal two. It equals 1.5. And no matter, here's the thing, no matter where you go in the universe, if there is an alien life out there and they're intelligent people, guess what happens on their planet? One plus one equals what? Two. It may be in Klingon, but it's still one plus one equaling two. It doesn't change. It's an unchanging standard. That's what absolute truth is. It's a truth that does not change. It doesn't change because I can't understand it. The gospel doesn't change because I don't, I don't receive it. It doesn't change because I think I've been so bad or done so much wrong that God can't help me. The same God who says, I can help you and did all these miracles is the same God today who is able to help people, who is able to heal people, who is able to comfort us when we need comforting. And this is what John tells us. When Jesus, before he went to the cross, was talking to his disciples, he said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And then Thomas, who later doubted him, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, and this is quoted all over the place, and I pray that people understand it. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way to God. It doesn't matter, and it's not, you know, about who's better. But all the different religions that claim the way to God, Jesus is saying, I am the unchanging truth. I am the only way to God. I am the unchanging truth, revelation of God, and I am the life. And he says that life that you want, that life that you can have, despite the, un- the, the circumstances that go off in our life, the, the bombs and craziness that go off and all over the planet and turmoil and war, the, the, the health and the, and, and the death and the, uh, the, the financial crises, no matter what, he says you can still have life through him. And that's why we see people in the midst of circumstances like that that are still seeming like nothing's going wrong. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and we're just going to close with a time of prayer. God, I pray that this morning that you would allow us to acknowledge you as the way, the truth, and the life. That in the midst of crazy circumstances in our life that we would receive the grace that you extend to us. We pray that we would not use your truth, as Jude says, as a license to just be immoral and do whatever we want but that we would understand your revelation of truth as a revelation of who God is, his love for us, his grace for us, and his mercy. And God, we know that there are times like today, and there will be times tomorrow, there will be times next week, and times next month when things don't make sense when we can't understand what's going on uh, in our families, let alone our ent- this entire world that we live in. But we pray that during those times that we would trust you, trust your truth, and trust your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen, amen, amen.